Radio Influence. The future is now. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Friday edition of the Dark Delight Podcast with Friday Val and Beans. We're about to do it. I'm not even going to take too much time on this intro. We are about to show the people a really stellar hour-long interview with Dr. McCullough. For those of you who don't know who Dr. McCullough is, Dr. Peter McCullough is an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist who is managing the cardiovascular complications of both the viral infection and the injuries developing after the COVID-19 vaccine in Dallas, Texas, that I recorded. You weren't, you were it came up suddenly and I did it, but you, you've heard it. You like it, right? Absolutely. And I'm glad that you, I mean, listen, when the, when the door knocks, you answer it. I answered it all right. So, so without further ado, guys, next week is a little bit different. Monday and Wednesday, we'll have shows, Frank. Friday, you're going to be driving up to, uh, driving down to uh, the extravaganza, right? I'll be driving down south. Yeah. So I'll have a solo show on Friday. And then the, the week after, it's all party all the time for us on the Dark Delay podcast. Yay. But here's a very somber, sadly, very somber and serious uh, interview with Dr. Peter McCullough. Please share it with all your friends and we will talk to you on Monday. Later. So as I said in the intro, I am honored to be joined today by Dr. Peter McCullough. Um, We last spoke, doctor, about eight months ago, believe it or not. It's been that long. Um, And you have a new book out that really is awesome because it's it's basically your story. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. It's called The The Courage to Face COVID. And it's written with uh, reporter John Leake. You know, I was absolutely thrilled when I was approached by true crime author, best-selling author, John Leake, uh, now over a year ago, to write a book. And what he did is he came into Dallas. He's from Dallas originally, but he had lived in Vienna, Austria, most of his adult life, and really developed himself as a, as a journalist, an investigator, a forensic translator. And he returned to Dallas. He said, you know, I have a sense that a crime is going on with the COVID-19 pandemic response, and I want to get to know you and I want to work with you. And what he did is, and the key characters of the book, he took the time to interview them on film and study their mannerisms, study uh, their perceptions of what occurred, their contributions to pandemic response, and they ultimately became chapters in the book. The book is now a bestseller in Viral diseases, uh, viral communicable diseases and true crime on Amazon. Uh, It is a page turner. It's not a medical book. It's actually a story. Because what John says is this is so hard to interpret. This is so unimaginable of what's really occurring. To understand a complex reality, one actually has to read it like a story, like a narrative. So it's actually true. It's nonfiction, narrative, true crime. And this is something that I've always wanted to ask you, but we're usually in like the depths of the medical mumbo jumbo. So I can't. But you are an established, very wildly successful doctor, um, authored more papers probably than anybody. And you've experienced this like flash of what actually was going on in these institutions for decades, even before covid. What was that like for you? I didn't see it coming, quite frankly. Tracy, but you know, now looking backwards, I understand that something was brewing for quite some time, and it's what we term the biopharmaceutical complex. This complex web of of stakeholders that are very financially entwined, and and it starts at the very top. I think at the top is the World Economic Forum, one of the most powerful groups of 
of billionaires and stakeholders, elitists, globalists, and is headed uh, by German Klaus Schwab. And uh, in that grouping is the Gates Foundation. People are familiar with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They formed CEPI, the Center for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, uh, which is basically a vaccine development consortium. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party, Gavi, the Equal Health Alliance, the World Health Organization, the CDC, NIH, FDA, the other analogous regulatory agencies, and Big Pharma. Uh, that is, in this case, the vaccine manufacturers. They are working in a giant public-private partnership for one goal, and that goal is to mass vaccinate the world. And is that the end goal of everything? Because it seems, even before people were like paying attention, that everything ended in vaccine. Everything. Every virus every like we had the chickenpox vaccine come out 15 something years ago we had you know it's it, everything ends in a vaccine why is it a nefarious reason in your opinion is it is it just because they want money i i would think they have enough money to to do whatever they want with 50 times over by this point there appears to be an absolute love affair with the vaccine the idea that mankind can alter the its own human immune system uh, you know, when I was born in 1962, there were three vaccines that children received. Three. A child born today would be assaulted with over 70 vaccines. I mean, this is extraordinary, the explosion of interest in vaccine. And what John Leake in our book says, he says, pay attention to public utterances. These public utterances over time really matter. So, for instance, when Bill Gates, uh, now over 10 years ago, says that it's going to be the decade of the vaccine, he meant it. When Gates said that his return on investment is 20 to 1, anything else he can do with vaccine development, he meant it. And when he said that vaccines could be used to trim the world's population, he meant it. When Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, within three months of COVID-19 uh, happening and emerging out of the lab in Wuhan, China, he writes a book called the, the Great Reset, and he says we will use this worldwide crisis to reset a new world order. We should take these public utterances seriously. I think the agenda is clear. And what we outline in our book, the perpetrators are this biopharmaceutical complex. The victims are the people who have lost their lives, have been hospitalized with COVID-19. The crime in our first book is the suppression of early treatment. The suppression of early treatment was from the very beginning worldwide. It was very intentional to promote fear, suffering, hospitalization, and death. And the motive to do that was to roll out a worldwide vaccine program. And the mantra, a needle in every arm, was the most important moniker that was ever uttered. And they meant it. And believe it or not, Tracy, two-thirds of the world's population has taken one of these vaccines. That's a stunning observation. It is. We were talking on, on the show Monday about how there are only 70 million Americans in the United States that have not taken the vaccine. Me, one of them um, and my family. But there's a lot in what you just said to unpack. So we'll start with the 70 vaccines in a child's arm, given the schedule now. You know, you're, you're a physician. You were treating adults, of course. Right. I don't think you did pediatric car cardiology, did you? No. So you didn't really dabble around with what was going on. But like there have been people screaming about this for a very long time now, and they've been basically poo pooed and called conspiracy theorists. But now we're at the place where you've made your entire career in this institution. You didn't see it coming. Now you see it. 
Is this happening across the board with colleagues that are still afraid to speak out? Because you guys were the trailblazers here with this, waking people up to it. There's something about drinking the Kool-Aid which changes the human mind. And what I mean by this, estimates are 96% of doctors took the COVID-19 vaccines. And I can tell you probably 99% of doctors like myself have taken all the vaccines prior to COVID. So in a sense, we have you know, had a big drink of the vaccine Kool-Aid for a long period of time. And what history will speak to is once doctors have had the Kool-Aid, they can think objectively. In the first great cocaine epidemic, late 1800s, early 1900s, doctors were hooked as a profession on in cocaine. Uh, the very first uh, uh, medicinal products from Merck and Pfizer, all the companies were cocaine. It was in Chianti wine, Coca-Cola. All the research was self-experimentation with cocaine. It took decades for the medical profession to basically come to reckoning that cocaine was ruining themselves and ruining their patients. Fast forward a few decades, doctors are fully engaged in the tobacco uh, uh, craze that took over the, the, the country. And doctors were smoking. They were on advertisements for smoking. Doctors refused to recognize that smoking caused any problems. It took 40 years from the time it was known that smoking caused lung cancer. It took 40 years for doctors finally to fully recognize this. This is uh, well described in the book uh, called The Emperor of All Maladies by Mukherjee. And then finally, and we have this in our book as an example, the opioid crisis. The doctors and nurses were fully engaged in the opioid crisis. They wrote virtually all the prescriptions for this. And now we're two decades into this crisis before we have uh, the book House of Pain and the movie Dope Sick. So I can tell you when doctors buy into something, they lose their objectivity. And the vast majority of doctors who are questioning the vaccines and the safety of the vaccines, like myself, we haven't taken them. So we can objectively look at it. The doctors who have taken the vaccines, very few are coming out with any regret. Is it because they are too proud or they don't want to feel the guilt for then doing harm, as it were, on their patients? Like, what is it? Is it it's basically mental, psychological? I think it's I think it's personal, psychological. Most of these doctors, they've had their spouses vaccinated. They vaccinated their children. I don't think they can psychologically come to terms with the idea that the vaccine and the spike protein in the vaccine now in a thousand papers, Tracy, thousand papers, the spike protein causes brain damage, causes heart damage, bone marrow damage, almost certainly is cancer promoting. And it's long lasting in the body. The messenger RNA stays in the body, a paper from Stanford by Holkin and colleagues, at least two months, if not longer. The messenger RNA codes for the spike protein. Bruce Patterson, who's now at Incel DX, formerly Northwestern and Stanford, Bruce has shown the spike protein almost certainly is in the body for well over a year. People have taken three, four, and five shots now, or approaching the fifth shot. They have now a, a durable installation of a potentially lethal protein that was engineered in a biosecurity lab in Wuhan, China. Most of these doctors, and there's other people, not just doctors, other healthcare professionals, engineers, financial services, you know, the kind of white collar executives, they bought into this. Interestingly, these people took these vaccines with no critical thinking. They didn't even ask what's in them. 
And that blows my mind, you know, and, and everybody, at least until now, trusted their doctor to tell them what was good and and bad for them. And there was literally zero informed consent with this thing because they didn't know how to give it. The information wasn't even available. But now that everybody I always say you can throw a rock and meet someone who's been affected by vaccine injury. It's just I hear the stories all day, even randomly on the street. Has there ever been a failure of a product in such a, a, a spectacular way that the results of this are being felt so hard, so fast. How can they keep it under wraps? Like, has this ever happened before with, with a medical product? This is the greatest failure, the greatest biological catastrophe of a biopharmaceutical in the history of mankind. It can't be understated. Let's take safety. World Council for Health, June 11th, 2022, Pharmacovigilance report from the U.S. CDC VAERS, UK Yellow Card, EU UDRA, and the WHO VigiSafe systems now is confirming over 40,000 people have died within a few days of taking the vaccine. 40,000. That's what the agencies are certifying. Uh, millions and millions of injuries and disabilities. Now, that 40,000 number worldwide could be a 1% reporting rate. Mm-hmm. It could be a hundredfold greater. It far exceeds any death with any product by a large, large margin. Typically, five or so deaths is a signal over 50 is automatically pulled off the market. We've had this with prior vaccines and drugs to let the deaths go on. And I testified in the Texas Senate on June 27th, 2022, and I brought the World Council for Health Pharmacovigilance report up. They asked me, Dr. McCullough, how come our CDC and our FDA and NIH and White House are not mentioning this. And I said, they're willfully blind. They are willfully blind. They're turning a blind eye to people losing their lives with the vaccine. And many of them now are taking the vaccine against their will. They're doing it to keep their jobs or stay in the military, stay in school. And it's an absolute crisis. And it's sad to say we've had two presidents now turn a blind eye to this. Mm -hmm. And even former President Trump will not mention the vaccines. And that's all what people really want to know. He's mentioning a lot of other issues and and everyone, the tension is all on the vaccines. I've said on Laura Ingram on Fox News, I've said if they dropped the vaccines tomorrow and pulled them off the market and dropped all the mandates, I think there would be a national, if not worldwide holiday. I think you and I would take a vacation for a month. Well, you know, the crazy thing is they kind of are doing that. They're just not focusing on it. So just just last week, I'm you know this, I've seen you talk about it. The CDC changed their guidelines on on vaccination were basically all treated the same again. So all those people that said, oh, I need to do this because I want, you know, to get back to normal life and I have to keep my job are back at square one with the people that didn't, except their immune systems are absolutely destroyed. And so they're doing it, but they're not doing it so that they can grab any accountability How do we bring accountability when doctors won't even acknowledge that it's happening? Morticians won't. I mean, um, coroners won't even acknowledge that it's happening. What do we do? You know, it was a stunning development, as you pointed out, when the CDC quietly put out additional guidance. And they said there's no difference between someone who is vaccinated or not vaccinated from a public health perspective. I mean, that should be a strong signal to the military, to any employer, that there's no difference. The only reason to have a mandate at work is to make a public health difference. The the employer's not looking out for the personal health of the employees because they're 
they're either losing their lives or being damaged or injured with the vaccines. You know, a recent Zogby survey, a very reputable survey company, uh, they surveyed Americans. Two thirds of Americans have taken the vaccine and shockingly, 15% have some new medical problem that they attribute to the vaccine. 15%, that means employers are now taking on a workforce where 15% have been damaged by these vaccines. The same with the military and with those in school at big universities. This is a stunning development. There's willful blindness, there's active injury and death going on, and uh, it's a crime. And as we point out in our second book, we're gonna make this very clear. That is a very intentional crime. The crime is mass negligent homicide. It, it's terrible, but it's true. I mean, there's there's no disputing it at this point. And I, I, I mean, I know you have connections everywhere. I don't know if you can share what your buddies in the insurance industry are saying, because I keep saying, this is going to blow up when the insurance carriers can't pay out their disability claims anymore because they're they're flooded with them or the life insurance companies go under because of policy issues. Have you heard anything like that? There are reports all over now, 2021 compared to baseline 2020. Remember in 2020, we had COVID. So uh, that was always there. But remember, the vast majority of people with life insurance are younger and they're employed. They get in life insurance through employment. So these employer-based life insurance programs are now reporting record claims, record claims. Lincoln National, one of the big ones recently, 63% excess all-cause mortality. Former BlackRock manager Edward Dowd has come out with some wonderful analyses. He's appeared on the high wire in virtually every major media outlet saying that, that listen, this is the, one of the biggest signals. And as we mentioned, this 1% reporting from the uh, the public health reporting systems and combined with a paper from Columbia uh, demonstrating that through January, there could have been 187,000 Americans have lost their lives due to the vaccine. This is all cohesive now. This all fits together. Uh, and, and so when people die, it's, it's important to understand that the cause of death is known in virtually every case before COVID. They die at 40% of people die with cancer, 40% with heart disease, 20% with other causes. And there's always a vignette, particularly in a young person. You know, they died after a long battle with cancer, with they died of, uh, you know, a fatal heart attack, or they died of, uh, you know, motor vehicle accident, a drug overdose, suicide. There's always an explanation. Now we're hearing reports. This is unbelievable, Tracy, of what's called sudden adult death syndrome, <laughs> yeah. where people just die of no cause. Recently, the whole province of Alberta in Canada has announced that the leading cause of death is unknown. This has never happened before because we always know. And so the so my view is anybody who's died with no explanation, if they have taken the vaccine, it's the vaccine until proven otherwise. And, and that leads me to this next thing. We're seeing all of these, you know, random, somewhat under control viruses pop up again. Right. So. Polio, for example, um, you know, this monkeypox virus, uh, this weird hepatitis that's been going around in children, likely of vaccinated mothers. What's happening to the general population and their immune systems? And then are the are the unvaccinated still able to handle those same things, even though they're incubating around in vaccinated people? The leading theory now, and there's several papers on this. There was one in Lancet Gastroenterology uh, by Aditi and colleagues, and uh, subsequently papers by Wheatley and Van Egren. They're describing what they call a spike protein super antigen. That is, when someone takes one of the vaccines, or they've had COVID-19, the respiratory illness, particularly a severe case, 
the body has been exposed to this spike protein. So the immune system is really chasing this spike protein. Now, with the vaccines, it's particularly bad because uh, people are getting massive exposures to this every six months. And in the paper by Wheatley in 2021, the word appeared in the title, immune imprinting, meaning the immune system is chasing this super antigen. Now, the super antigen coded by Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and AstraZeneca outside the United States is the original Wuhan spike protein. That's obsolete now. It's mutated greatly. So while the immune system in the vaccinated is chasing this obsolete protein, then the body is hit with an Omicron BI5 variant and another case of COVID. Or uh, a child who could have been exposed to the vaccine or the respiratory illness or the spike protein through other exposures now is hit with adenovirus 41 and has a fatal case of hepatitis or uh, polio virus, which has always been in the water supply. Now polio virus is able to hit a weakened immune system. And in a paper by E. Thorson and colleagues in JAMA recently published, those who've taken three or more vaccines have a 42% excess risk of reinfection compared to someone who took no vaccines or uh, just one shot. I can tell you the vaccines are backfiring. Uh, they are weakening the immune system, as you implied. And people who have taken the vaccines now are susceptible to a whole host of problems, recurrent SARS-CoV-2 infection, but almost certainly other viral infections. We're seeing Epstein-Barr virus reactivation, it's herpes, okay. <laughs> herpes uh, virus, um, uh, uh, various forms of herpes virus reactivation. And uh, as you pointed out, adenovirus 41 and, uh, and, and polio. And, you know, one of the things I've learned through this is that if if you've got a weakened immune system or someone immunocompromised who gets infected with a virus and that virus is harbored in the body for any length of time, mutations occur. So so my my theory that I'd love some input on is what happens if we've got a class of people, however many hundreds of million in the country, they get infected with a, you know, usually easily handled virus that virus mutates while in the body are the unvaccinated now more susceptible to these viruses again, because they've changed so much while in immunocompromised people. Well, that's what happened with SARS-CoV-2. So there were papers by uh, Venkata Krishnan and um, Neeson and colleagues that demonstrated that the vaccinated were in a sense incubators for the virus. So they don't sterilize the virus. So the virus is in the nasopharynx and it's mutating, trying to find a way to beat the vaccine. And by these mutations, the virus basically increased its replication speed and increased its resistance to the library of antibodies that the fully vaccinated get. And that's what generated the Delta variant, the Omicron variant, and then the BA5 variant. So if we didn't have vaccines, we probably just would have had COVID once and couldn't get it a second time. But once we had enough people vaccinated, then Omicron broke through and it infected both the unvaccinated previously recovered, as well as those who took the vaccine. So in a sense, the vaccinated gave us this gift of having COVID-19 a second and third time. Now, fortunately, with each subsequent infection, it's milder for both the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And a recent paper by Kima Telly and colleagues showed that if one has previously had COVID, there's 97% protection against ever ending up in the hospital or dying. It, it basically has mutated to like a form of the common cold, we have occasional senior citizens or those with risk factors need treatment, Tracy. But I can tell you, the hospitals are empty. We're learning to live with this. Recently, I put out an op-ed 
And I said, the CDC has basically changed its stance from a COVID zero policy, trying to get to zero cases, to a COVID inevitable policy, meaning we're going to get it over and over again. So there's a lot of data coming out and I can't cite papers like you because I'm not a genius, but there's a lot of data coming out that's showing that the majority of people still dying of COVID are the vaccinated. And is that a case of just there's more vaccinated people out there and that's why that's happening? Or is it because the body can't handle the mutation, the mutations it's getting, you know, when, when it comes around again and it implodes for lack of a better word. You know, that's a complicated question to unpack. Uh, we do know that nothing has changed with the coding practices. So uh, in the United States, Italy, uh, this has been well published in you know, almost all the developed countries. Over 90% of people who die, they actually die with COVID and not due to COVID. So um, most hospitals you know, are not seeing patients with COVID pneumonia on a ventilator. So there's people in the hospital with mortal conditions and they're testing COVID positive. Uh, and there was a paper uh, out uh, from the National Institutes of Health. The first author was Chertow and colleagues. And there was another supportive uh, paper as well, demonstrating that one can actually have the virus in them and intermittently test positive for many months after the infection. So I am suspicious now that the majority of cases in the hospital are people who've had a fatal motor vehicle accident or a fatal cancer because there's been so many people now have had COVID that they're just testing positive and they don't have mm. COVID pneumonia. Uh, and so we'd really need to see mortality adjudicated by did they actually have COVID pulmonary failure or are they dying in the hospital of other causes? The overall death rates are way down. And it is true, those in the hospital who are in the hospital uh, for um, suspected COVID are those who are fully vaccinated, those testing positive. vast majority in Canada, uh, the, the UK, South America, EU, uh, Australia, Iceland, uh, you, you know, they're, they're, they're fully vaccinated, partly because the entire populations of those countries are largely fully vaccinated and because the vaccines have no protection against severe disease. You know, there were three false claims of the COVID-19 vaccine program. The first false claim is they stopped the infection. You heard President Biden say that. You heard Rachel Maddow and other people in the media say, if you get the vaccine, you cannot get COVID. Well, that was quickly found to be false. And in early 2021, people were pouring into the hospitals who were fully vaccinated. And the second false claim was that it could stop transmission. And then there were papers that came out, uh, originally one from Fahrenheit from Houston, and then they poured in. Uh, first authors were uh, Acharian, Rhymerisma, Acorsi, Chow. They all showed that the fully vaccinated were uh, basically transmitting to other fully vaccinated people. Uh, they, they had it in their nose. The vaccine didn't stop the virus from setting up its replication in the nasopharynx. And then the third false claim is, well, if, even though the vaccines have failed on the first two, if you get COVID, it's going to be a milder syndrome. Uh, and, and that one was a, a tricky false claim because, you know, the randomized trials, uh, there were no randomized trials using hospitalization death as a primary endpoint. So that claim actually can't be made unless it's a randomized trial where hospitalization death are a primary endpoint. And then on top of that, even the randomized trials where it was a secondary endpoint, there was no signal. So the FDA never granted that claim. So what came out of this was just a biased literature. People would do a quick uh, a database run and say, aha, the vaccines reduce the risk of hospitalization. What we knew is that what was really reducing the risk of hospitalization was previous infection and being recovered or getting early treatment. 
not whether or not you took a vaccine. These papers never accounted for that. We also found out that many of the hospital data systems like Epic, the electronic medical record, they assumed everybody was unvaccinated unless the patient really got into the record and got it changed. And so this false talking point that it's a crisis of the unvaccinated in the summer of 2021 was just a fraudulent claim from electronic medical records. You know, interestingly, in early treatment talk, I I heard you say in an interview that you are actually prescribing Paxlovid to patients. Um, And a lot of people are very hesitant on Paxlovid because it's it's, you know, proving not to really be as effective as as they they say it is with rebound infections. Pretty, pretty big. Um, What what is your methodology behind that? And do you find it beneficial? You know, I've prescribed all the drugs for COVID-19, including every monoclonal antibody. Most recent, by the way, is called EvuShield, uh, which is uh, a long-acting monoclonal antibody used like a vaccine, tixacivimab and sixgivimab. I've prescribed hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, uh, Paxlovid, and molnupiravir. I've used all the drugs. And I think it's important to talk to doctors that have a broad range of pharmacologic experience. Paxlovid, in the EPIC uh, trial, it was done in people age 45, unvaccinated. It did reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. And that's the reason why I used it. But I used it on label, Tracy. I used it only in younger people who had not taken a vaccine. And I always used it in addition to community standard of care, which includes uh, the use of virucidal nasal washes, corticosteroids, aspirin, colchicine, uh, antibiotics, uh, nebulizers. I never used it alone. So I wasn't, I was doing what good doctors do is you take a new product and you incorporate it in a community standard of care. The mistake that started happening is people started using Paxlovid off label. They used it in fully vaccinated people. And this was done with President Biden, our NIAID director, Dr. Anthony Fauci. It's being done with the current Pfizer CEO, Borla. And the CDC says, don't do this. Because if you give Paxlovid in a fully vaccinated person as monotherapy, it leads to rebound. So what's rebound? Someone gets COVID, the the, um, medication itself kind of reduces the replication transiently. People transiently feel better, and then they rebound, and it's way worse. So uh, Paxlovid rebound, supported by multiple papers now in a a May 24th, 2022 Health advisory. This is the first health advisory CDC put out against a drug, and it was Paxlovid. Said, don't use it in the unvaccinated because a, it makes the syndrome worse. It makes it much longer. So, um, you know, I, I again, I think Paxlovid used as part of community standard of care with the principles that we've published uh, in a multi-drug regimen is reasonable. But the way it's being used in these public figures is way off label and it's making it worse. No, it's funny. They're okay with using it off label uh, drugs off label when it suits them in order to prop up Pfizer. But when it's a drug like ivermectin being used off label, it's a big no, no. It's interesting to just watch how that changes throughout time. And, you know, it's interesting because I have a hard time as a person believing any Pfizer clinical trial after the work that I've done researching what they did in their clinical trials for the vaccine. And so how do you square that as a physician? Like, how do you look at their trial and take what they're saying as, as, as legitimate when you know what they've done in the past? People have lost their trust. And I think this is really important. They've lost their trust. Uh, we're down to almost not trusting even the regulatory dossier. And probably the, the biggest example of this is um, the court order documents that were released by Pfizer. Under pressure, Pfizer had to release its documents from its dossier 
on pharmacovigilance on their uh, Pfizer BioNTech vaccine. And the lawyer for the FDA did not want to release this information to the U.S. public for 55 years. This is the FDA. Well, what was in this dossier? Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths within 90 days of release of their product. Should have been pulled off the market with no more than 50 deaths. But Pfizer let it go on without a voluntary recall. The FDA let it go on, and the FDA tried to block it to the American public. This is prima facie evidence that a crime is going on. A regulatory crime is going on. Pfizer is producing a dangerous product, and almost certainly Moderna is doing the same thing, and Johnson Johnson. And the FDA is allowing this to be ha happen. They're allowing it to be mandated, despite it causing great harm in the population. And this is creating enormous tension. The average American knows now these vaccines are dangerous and they don't want to take them. Yeah. And then, you know, you said in the beginning, the goal was a shot in every arm. Now, arguably in the trial phase, they knew a shot in every arm would mean certain percentages of people would die, but they're still holding onto it. So is this Gates's population reduction plan? Like, what are they doing to the human population? It's not even a country specific thing, even though the United States doesn't really release the data that we would like. What is the grand plan here? You know, they, they know at this point and they're still pushing it. Why? Do you have any idea why? They're willfully blind. And, you know, if you take them at face value, they've all taken the shots themselves. They've all taken their shots themselves. And, uh, yeah, I think it's important just to take information at, at face value. I just look at the, you know, the scope of the peer reviewed literature. I try not to do anything more than just read into um, the public utterances that come out. There's willful blindness. Our CDC and FDA has not done a single safety review. They just put out a talking point, safe and effective. And, uh, you know, that's all we know. Now, whether it's intentional or not intentional, it's clear the vaccines are leading to mass numbers of deaths. And because of that, that will reduce the U.S. population and it'll reduce the worldwide population. Whether it's, again, intentional or unintentional, stated or not stated, that's simply what's going to happen. But there is going to be a giant tsunami of chronic disease, heart disease, blood clots. In my experience, by the way, the heart disease, the myocarditis and the blood clots, they don't go away quickly. I have patients in my practice now with blood clots that are present for over a year, resistant to blood thinners. Uh, the heart damage going on by MRI and by clinical exam for well more than a year. Uh, people are now damaged. Uh, they have neurologic uh, uh, array of problems, small fiber neuropathies, cerebrocerebellar syndromes. Uh, these are now well described in the literature. And they're in public figures. Uh, look at Justin Bieber. He's got Ramsey Hunt syndrome. Yeah. The only possible exposure in his life is going to be the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, look at his wife. His wife has developed a blood clot. The story is she had a patent frame in a valley and a shot to the brain and had a stroke. You know, what predisposed her to form the blood clot? It almost certainly could have been the vaccine. How about a uh, second best female golfer in the world, Nellie Corda? Blood clot in her arm. And I've seen this in my practice. It's published in the literature. The setup for this is what's called thoracic outlet obstruction, which happens in athletes as the chest muscles hypertrophy. There is a reduction in venous flow underneath the first rib. Uh, but then the hypercoagulable state installed is the COVID-19 vaccine. What about these notable deaths, starting with Hank Aaron, uh, a former baseball great, takes the vaccine and dies just a few weeks later. 
And then uh, uh, Midgen Lewis, CNN correspondent Marvin Hagler, deaths that occurred concurrently with vaccine and COVID-19, Larry King and Colin Powell, uh, now a stroke and Bruce Willis who can't uh, speak, uh, toe amputations and blood clots and Dion Sanders, a former Dallas Cowboy great. Uh, now uh, hundreds and hundreds of athletes uh, dying of sudden death. A Russian soccer player recently dies of a pulmonary embolism. Uh, and it just keeps going and going and going. Notable death after notable death. No mention, it's very interesting. No mention of the vaccine, although some of these circumstances, it's clear they took the vaccine. You can you can find evidence of it uh, in prior tweets or public utterances or uh, infer that they had mandates for their employment. And then the other interesting factor is no outrage, no family outrage, right. no mention. It's, it's as if it's just, it just happens as if that life was just snuffed out. And, and the, uh, the statement is the, the eulogy is, is typically some type of, um, you know, general platitude, like we need to enjoy life while we have it together on this earth. It is astonishing that, that, that more people wouldn't be outraged that their child just died of a cardiac arrest after taking the vaccine. I think like we talked about at the beginning, it's a psychological thing. People just don't want to admit that, A, they were duped, that they encouraged someone else to take it, that they, you know, that they um, didn't speak up when they knew they should have about someone else taking it. So it's just like this mass sort of psychological issue that we're dealing with on top of the fact that the people that we have placed our trust in, whether, you know, directly through voting or otherwise in the bureaucracy have not lifted a finger other than now silently behind the scenes with their kind of gestures to, to, to raise the flag on this. You know, in the beginning, we talked about how papers weren't even able to be published on this. They were, they were, you know, yanking papers from journals. They were uh, scrutinizing them after, after blowback from, from political establishment. Are you seeing that change now where more people are willing to publish these papers? More journals are. No, the journals are doubling, if not tripling down on trying to block any adverse information coming out in the vaccines. I had fully published a paper in Current Problems of Cardiology on myocarditis with Jessica Rose, you know, paid the publication fees, copyright, fully peer-reviewed, vetted in print in the National Library of Medicine. Then Elsevier, five days before the pediatric meetings on vaccines, pulls the paper and retracts it with no reason and no due process. It's stunning what's going on right now. We can't trust the peer-reviewed medical literature. And in fact, we see papers coming out saying, oh, complications are rare with the vaccines. Well, how do they know it's rare? I mean, we haven't seen any studies outside of the cohort studies and the cohort studies that exist. It's shocking. This recent cohort study from Bangkok, Thailand by Masuki and, and colleagues, we were stunned where children aged 13 to 18 had cardiac troponin, echo, and if needed, uh, ECG and if needed MRI before and after the second dose of Pfizer, it was stunning. 29% of the kids have cardiovascular symptoms. And that About doesn't, that doesn't change. You don't heal from that, correct? Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're typically sustained uh, symptomatology, at least for several days or several weeks, but stunning Tracy, there was about two and a half percent that had myocarditis, two and a half percent. And, uh, uh, you know, two kids ended up in the hospital and the shocking thing about it was what's called subclinical myocarditis. That is, they didn't have any symptoms. And the fact that they were in the study, we actually saw the elevations in troponin, EKG changes, and echo. How many children have taken a vaccine 
and actually sustain heart damage now. And nobody knows. And we won't understand the ramifications from this until later on in their lives. So that can creep up later on, you know, decades later um, as an issue for them, even though it happened when they were in their, you know, single digits. Absolutely. As can myocarditis of other causes. Uh, You know, in a paper from Finland by Arolio and colleagues, it was established that the baseline rate of myocarditis, which can happen with a parvovirus or an adenovirus, is about four cases per million per year in children. Okay. The CDC with the COVID vaccines initially estimated 62 cases per million per year. Then Tracy Hogan, UC Davis, estimated several hundred cases per million per year. And then Scharf and colleagues in Kaiser, ages 18 to 24, had the number over 500 cases per million. But now with this bombshell report by Misugian and colleagues from Bangkok, Thailand, that real number could be 25,000 cases per million. That's terrifying. It's terrifying. You know, and we we had thought that maybe it would take 10 years to start seeing the ramifications of this, um, this gene therapy. I don't even think it is a vaccine, honestly. And now they're starting to couple it into flu inoculation. Can you explain what can happen if they start doing this mRNA technology for flu vaccine? MRI technology appears to be very dangerous as well as adenovirus genetic technology because the genetic material harnesses the human body to produce a foreign protein. This turns out to be a very bad idea. Only human proteins should be produced in the human body, period. The human body should not be producing foreign proteins, particularly viral proteins. And so Moderna announced they're going to have 15 different vaccines where now the human body would be taken over to produce these foreign proteins. I think it's a disaster because there's no control. We have, we have no control over the quantity of foreign protein that's produced and the duration of production. And it's a total disaster with the spike protein in the person who, who takes up too much genetic material in the wrong place for the wrong time, the wrong duration. It's fatal. It's fatal. And one of the toughest questions I had on the whole interview trail was, was with uh, Joe Rogan. And by the way, I set all records on Joe Rogan. I'm still the record holder in terms of listens and downloads ahead of Elon Musk. Joe asked me if it's so bad how come everybody doesn't die of the vaccine? And do you know what the answer is? I learned this later on. The vaccines, probably because of manufacturing error, are probably relatively inert. That is, they're relative duds. Remember how they used to have to be super cooled and yep. it was all this effort? You don't hear about that anymore. They change the buffers. They don't super cool it. Nurses are using multi-use files. I think the majority of people are getting relatively inactive messenger RNA or adenovi. They get a sore arm and that's about it. But those who get the well-preserved, well-made, well-handled product are getting the fatal doses. And that's the reason why that the deaths and the injuries are linked to specific lots of vaccine. Yeah, there's a way to even track that now. Um, there's a website, um, howbadismybatch.com is the name of it. And someone's gone through VARES and kind of pulled adverse events and thrown that together. Um, I listened to that Joe Rogan. It was, I think, wasn't that the episode where you said you can't get COVID again and then in came Omicron? It's true. That's the one thing people wanted to go after me. They said, you can't get it a second time. I said, it's true. You couldn't. I was, I made some house calls where I went in and I had people cough all over me. I couldn't get it a second time. But as soon as Delta broke through natural immunity, it literally happened two days later, the CDC announced it. Fortunately, I went on national TV. I was on uh, Laura Ingram, Ingram Angle, And I just announced, I said, listen, it's changed. 
you can get it a second time. <laughs> I felt so, so I bad. Corrected it, but yeah, people wanted to point it out. Aha, Dr. McCullough is wrong on something. But it brings up the issue that the science is evolving over time. And you can see even on this interview, Tracy, see how careful I am to cite the data. Anybody can look up these papers that I've quoted. And, and you know, when you listen to almost any other media doctor and certainly our public health officials, they never cite the data. I'm the only one. No, and you're brilliant at it. Um, and you're also everywhere. So how in the heck do you maintain your day? Like, what is a typical day in the life of Dr. McCullough look like? I'm very curious. Well, that phone call that just interrupted us a little while ago was from a patient who wants to talk about his lab results. So I've got to call him back when we're done. I have two days a week in the office as an internist and cardiologist. I do, um, uh, you know, I do all the phone and on-call work on the other days. And the rest of the days, I am a clinical scholar. Uh, I am uh, a frequent media commentator. I've had two major stage presentations at uh, CPAC. I'm a frequent contributor on Fox, Newsmax, OAN. I've been on ABC. I've testified in the U.S. Senate twice, uh, including co-moderating the five-hour COVID-19 second opinion session on January 24th, 2022. And I have a new book out as we went over Courage to Face COVID-19 with John Leake. And and given the the dire situation of the pandemic, you know, my claim, Tracy, is when this is all said and done, I want to be able to tell the world I did everything I could. And I called the balls and the strikes. I objectively interpreted the information. I wanted to help people from the beginning That's the reason why I devised early treatment protocols. I was an advocate for early treatment, as imperfect as it was. And uh, I'm not against vaccines. I've previously taken all the other vaccines on the schedule, as I implied my kids have. But when these vaccines came out, I wanted to have healthy skepticism. Good doctors and good patients are naturally skeptical on a brand new technology. This was brand new gene transfer technology that's turned out to be a very bad set of products, very dangerous and completely ineffective. They haven't stopped a single case of COVID. Now, we'll end with this. I know that you've been treating the vaccine injured as well. Is there any hope for folks who have gotten this to to clear clear this mechanism, fix their immune system, get back to uh, where they need to be, and then you can take care of that patient who probably really needs you? Well, there are some analogies starting to emerge from the long COVID syndrome, which is thought to do to residual spike protein in the body. So there's a recent randomized trial from Israel, interestingly, of hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which is promising. The World Council for Health and the Frontline Critical Care Network both have suggested detox protocols. And again, they're just suggestions, nothing proven in randomized trials, nothing really in prospective cohort studies. They largely focus on nutraceuticals and, and vitamins. Some feature the use of ivermectin, which has some anti-spike protein capabilities. Uh, Interestingly, um, intermittent fasting uh, is thought to be beneficial. Um, But, uh, you know, people want to have their cake and eat it, too. The average person who asks me, Dr. McCullough, uh, is there anything I can do to to detox this out of my body? When I ask the question, why'd you take it? Well, I didn't want to take it, but I took it for school or for work, what have you. Do you see what I mean? So it's kind of having your cake and eat it too. I wanted to stay in my job, but but I want to get it out of my body. Yeah. Or I, you know, and I hear this all the time about other vaccines. Which is the safest vaccine? I'll say, well, do you need a vaccine? No, I already had COVID. Do you want a vaccine? No, I don't want one. I just want to travel or work or school or military. That's the wrong reason to take a vaccine. I think what people need to understand is 
The only way to stay healthy is keep these vaccines out of the human body. If it means changing jobs or careers, put your health as a priority. These patients with blood clots, heart damage, accelerated cancer, they're miserable. There's not a single one that would actually uh, make that trade again. Every patient I've talked to, I saw a patient, young man today, or this week with myocarditis yesterday, he said the same thing. I wish I never would have taken that gamble. I, I would have gladly transferred universities than suffer heart damage. He's a, he's a young college kid. And people don't think about this. People say, well, I want my military retirement. I said, really? You want your military retirement, but then be neurologically devastated? Do you know in a paper by Burhild and colleagues in JAMA, this is stunning, in JAMA, three Nordic countries, they recorded 7,750 intracranial hemorrhages and large strokes, neurologically devastating. Wow. And they carefully ruled out the virus. The people did not get the respiratory virus. They got Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca. Can you imagine 7,750 new neurologically devastated people? That, that's rare. That that rarely yeah. happens. So Tracy, what job is worth that? What, what, what military career is worth that to be uh, in a wheelchair or to be wrecked, you know, in a rehab center using a, a walker? People need to understand this is a clear and present danger. They need to understand, too, that if they've taken a shot or two shots and they're fine, chances are if they take no more shots, they're going to be fine. They probably got a relatively inert batch. But if you keep doing this over and over again, that rate that Zogby determined at 15 percent, that's high enough. You look at the cumulative chances each time you get to three or four shots uh, or five shots, it's, it's almost a certainty that one's gonna gonna be injured or or potentially lose their life with the vaccines. Terrible. Dr. McCullough, I always love having a conversation with you. Everybody go out, the link will be in the show notes by the courage to face COVID. Um I'm I'm not through it yet, but I'm I'm I love it. It's it's a great book. I can't wait for the second one. Thanks for spending time with us today in your busy schedule. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. This is a Rock Stops Here with Rock Riley Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Oh, yeah. Got a big one today. Now, if you follow the NFL, if you watch the NFL, NFL on Fox, I love their production. I love their games on Fox. I love the halftime shows. I love Kurt Menefee as the host. And of course, the Terry and the Michael Strahan, Jimmy Johnson for years, uh, Terry Bradshaw, Jay Glazier, breaking news, the pregame, the postgame. NFL on Fox is just the best. And Kurt Menefee, the great host, the quarterback of that team, is my guest here on The Rock Stops Here. Two pieces of advice. Do anything and work your ass off doing anything. You know, I, I think so many people look at the end game. And for me, it was never about that. I mean, I told you, I started out thinking I wanted to be a producer and someone said, put your voice down on tape. Why don't you try this? Uh, I stayed late at night uh, when I interned at CNN, the first gig I ever had in this business, just to learn how to edit. And I would just watch guys and I taught myself with help from people, but how to edit. And so you just, you know, you do anything. I carried gear when I first started out in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I pulled cable. I wound up getting on air. And by doing that, it's like, have you ever done sidelines? No, I did that for Fox. Have you ever done play by play? No, I did that for Fox. One opportunity will lead to another as long as you work hard and show people that you're not only willing to do anything, but when you do it, you're going to succeed at it. You're going to bust your ass at it. And even if you fail, you're going to fail trying. 
because people will put their arms around you. They'll embrace you. They'll say, okay, look, you didn't know how to do this, but I'm going to show you how to do this because you work hard. And I think as long as you put those two together, then the sky's the limit. The Rock stops here with longtime radio and TV personality. Rock Riley is found anywhere you find podcasts and radioinfluence.com.